all got that voice in our head that tells us we can't do stuff. But some people are just better at not listening to it. And by sitting down with those people, asking them questions, and then you know, recording it and blasting it out on the internet, perhaps, maybe, I can help other people like me get out of our own way. Hey guys, welcome back to Closure Optional. My guest this week is Anna Almargo. She is a psychologist that works up in Brisbane and around the Gold Coast. She has got a master's degree in professional psychology from the University of Queensland and has been around uh, doing work on the coast for a long time in both neuropsychology and cognitive behavioral therapy and also EDMR, which is another uh, form of kind of trauma-based therapy. This is a super interesting conversation. Uh, it may be one that you listen to a couple times because there is a lot of information going on here. We talk a lot about mental health. Obviously, the whole podcast pretty much is about mental health. Some of the issues that we find, some of the neuroscience behind why our brains do what they do, how our brains are connected to our bodies and that feedback loop, and uh, some of the core reasons why when you feel depressed, you lose motivation. Also, how to get yourself back on track if you're starting to feel like you're slipping into yucky states of being that you don't want to be in. Um, before I get into the podcast, just quickly say thank you to everybody who's been um, participating in my stupid uh, birthday challenge. Next week, uh, I'll be drawing the grand prize for anybody that's sharing, commenting, liking, doing any of my stupid social media stuff because... Uh, you guys know how painful this shit is for me, and I really, really appreciate uh, everybody doing their little bits to help me out. And all the new patrons that have signed up to help the podcast, I cannot thank you enough. It fucking means the world to me. This is something I want to do for the rest of my life, and I know it seems weird and off track, but I'm way too mental to be fucking working in an office with other people because I just lose my shit. So, you know, this is the best thing for all of us. <laughs> Um, thank you again for everybody that's taken part in that. And a uh, quick little update about this month's challenge. We are doing Meditarch, which means that Melina and I have to meditate at least 10 minutes every day, and we do five minutes of breathing exercises every day. It has been so cool. We downloaded this app. It's called the Waking Up app by, uh, he's also a neuroscientist and a uh, philosopher, Sam Harris. And he just does these guided meditations that run for about 10 minutes. Um, he's got one for every day. And then there's a few lessons inside the app as well about the concept of mindfulness or the nature of the self or the nature of being or whatever. Uh, it's so cool. I realized the other day, like I was wondering if I was becoming less mental or not. And then I had a moment where I was feeling mad you know just like when you're shitty you're just grumpy for no fucking good reason I was probably hungry or tired or something and I had a reason to like be mad and say something out loud and I just had this little moment inside my head where I the option to be mad appeared and I was about to say something and then my head was like uh really do you have to and then I was like nah I guess I don't and then it just passed away and then I didn't start a fight. I didn't get mad at anyone. And I just went back about my life. <laughs> so if anything could be said for meditating, I think that was a win. I don't feel any more spiritually enlightened, but I do definitely feel calmer. And I'm sleeping a lot better. So that's cool. 
So if you want to uh, jump on board with that, the app is called Waking Up, and uh, I'll put a link to it on my website. And anyway, I think that's it. Uh, forgive my voice again. Sorry for, I, I don't know, I, I'm always yelling at people in class, so I always lose my voice. I don't know when it's going to come back to normal, but for now I have sort of a sweet husky rasp <laughs> that uh, I'm stuck with, it seems, indefinitely. Hope you guys have a great week. Thank you so much for listening, and I uh, hope you enjoy this conversation. Welcome to the podcast. How are you? Well, thank you. Is this Very the first good. podcast you've ever done? It is. It oh, is. How exciting. I've done some Buddhist radio thing once a few years ago, but I was just the intermediate between like a monk and somebody else asking questions. Oh. It was really weird. But um like a moderator? Yeah, I was the moderator and the put the song on DJ girl. <laughs> like, <laughs> I think I did a very bad job, but yeah, this is the first time, like, properly in front of a microphone. It's oh, exciting. Cool. Yeah, man. I well, feel like you'll hear my smile a lot because I smile when I get nervous. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know. I'm a laugher. I, I laugh when I'm nervous and I smile a lot. That's a, probably a better reaction than being grumpy and angry face. Yeah. You get people, because people obviously come to the gym all the time that are nervous or new to the sport, and, and they'll be, like, really tense. You're like, is everything okay? Like, did you have an all right day? And then you realize, yeah. oh, this is just their nervous face. Yeah. At least the smile is approachable. Yeah, good. So you deal in psychotherapy and you've been, you've got a background in neurophysiology, yeah? Yeah, well, I've done some biological psych, but I worked, I was working at a place called Brain, Mind and Memory Center and we did a lot of neurofeedback training, which is, you know, putting the electrodes onto the different areas of your brain and training that part of the brain to create a certain type of brainwave which is associated with a particular sort of behaviour, inhibitory or approach. And so what kind of stuff would you be treating? Um, so in at that centre, a lot of the clients that came through were kids with ASD or ADHD. Oh, so okay. training their brain to focus more, being able to concentrate and come back into themselves. And, and it works? How does that, what's the biological foundation of that? Like how does it work? Um, so the theory behind neurofeedback training is that our brain p- produces certain types of waves and when we're sitting, not thinking, kind of daydreaming, we're in what's called the default mode network. I don't know if you've ever heard about that. That's that's our certain type of calm um, natural go-back-to position of our brain and... Um, when we're focused, we have more activity up the front, our prefrontal cortex, that sort of higher executive thinking. So we're trying to, depending on what we're doing and what that person needs, the electrodes will go where it needs. And there would be like, say there'd be a rocket ship on the screen. And if you can get your brain, if you're breathing and you can get your brain into that right state, the the spaceship will fly where it needs to fly. Oh, and as soon wow. as it starts to go out, as soon as you start to get distracted or start to daydream again, um, 
the spaceship will fade away or go up or down and you have to come bring it back in straight. Wow. Yeah. So it's brain training. Yeah. And it's working with neuroplasticity, right? Which yeah. is the idea that your brain is creating new neuron neural connections. Yeah. So the brain's always creating, destroying neural pathways. Um, and, you know, I guess that's what's the big thing about with habit and there's all these books now about habit forming and the importance of um, creating good habits because basically all our behaviours, all our addictions are habit mm. habit forming, all even our um, emotional reactions oh, are yeah, just true. ways that we've been used to. They've worked for us at some point in the past and so we continue to use those until they stop working. And for some of us it takes a lot longer for us to realise that that's not working anymore. Yeah, fuck. Yeah. <laughs> Tell me about it. <laughs> no, the amount of times you're like, I will never do that again. Oh, whoops, I did. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like I was saying about the coffee before, every day I'm like, oh, two coffees, that's too many. Yeah. <laughs> but I do it. And so if you're talking from a physiological perspective, like in the brain, when you have a habit it's just a very deeply rooted Neural connection, strong neural connection, right? Yeah. So you think of any... um, I'll get a little bit into, like, motivation and and stress and anxiety in a bit, but if you want to think of it in terms of, like, a ski slope and so you go down the same path, if you keep going down that same path, you'll create quite a thick divot in the sand or what I mean in the the sand (laughs) of a snowfield um and so as you you keep going you're creating a deeper and deeper path and so each time you go down that mountain it becomes easier to choose that path that path of less resistance yeah but to form a new habit we need to pull off and pick a different path like slope a different way yeah okay and that requires a lot of effort in the beginning so that's what I think of people so like if we're talking Mm. you go to me if I said something even remotely critical of you and you're like I'm not like that yeah yeah that's an automatic response that's a deeply ingrained path down that down that mountain so to create that pause that moment of stop that's a whole nother path that we need to start taking and then we need to start practicing that till that path becomes more entrenched Mm. And we're not using that original path so that can start being filled back up with snow and using those neurons for other purposes. Yeah, okay. So if somebody says something like, oh, it's just me, I just always do that, basically they're resigning themselves to the fact that they're stuck inside that one slope. Yeah, (laughs) yeah. yeah. And and the truth is they can change that at any point in time. They just have to change it. They have to make an active decision to. Yeah. And what stops people from being able to take that pause to get onto the other path? Like how do you know that it's time? I think that's what's one of the biggest challenges in in therapy is people's motivation. Mm. I get you've, you've got to want to do it. You've got to be able to recognise that that isn't working for you anymore and that might be an ex- external, somebody outside telling you straight mm. out, look, you can be a real bitch. You've got to change your ways or no one's going to like you. Yeah. <laughs> for example, or it could be like a friend saying, you know, I notice that you drink every night, I'm starting to worry about that. Or it might be something internally, like you're dissatisfied with life and you know that something needs to change. And we usually, when we can learn how to self-reflect, which I think is one of the most important Mm. things that a human can do to better themselves, it's quite easy to find, all right, 
no, I know that this is a problem for me. Yeah. But admitting that to, first to ourselves and then ultimately to others or to a therapist yeah. is really difficult. Because there's shame, so yeah. much shame. <laughs> Do you know what's interesting about that? Like I've been kind of thinking, playing around with this idea because uh, we were talking before about this book, The Games People Play, um, that the foundation in transactional analysis is that everything that we do, all behavior is motivated by recognition. So you're looking for recognition from the other person. You want acknowledgement that you exist more or less. All human behavior is kind of generally rooted, can be kind of sort of drilled down to that. And so if you don't get that recognition, it becomes what they call recognition hunger or stroke hunger. In the same way that a baby who doesn't get fed will cry out when they're hungry, a baby who doesn't get cuddled will cry out for affection, just like they're hungry. And what I was um, just thinking about was this idea that shame is almost like your biological alarm bell to tell you that you've done something that no longer serves you. In the same way that we get hungry for recognition or get hungry for food, when we feel shame, it means that we are hungry for our own personal like uh, improvement or whatever. Like yeah. the, it's just the, it's the same thing as your body's just an alarm bell going, hey, wait a second. I think you're doing something now that mm-hmm. doesn't serve you. Even if it's a habit that served you in the past, yeah, it exactly. doesn't serve you anymore. And it's, it's our, it's kind of like our, um, our social compass as well. It lets us know like yeah. Oh, yeah. if we're relating well in the world, if we're doing things that are, that are helping us form relationships or mm. break them down. Like I th- but you're exactly right. Mm. And shame is, I don't know, for me it's a really important emotion and it's one that we, it's difficult to identify and I th- uh, it's difficult to sit with, I think. Yeah. And we oh, do a lot yeah. of avoiding it or blaming others because as humans generally we want to take that path of least resistance and shame is hard because... Ultimately, we know the function is that we need to change. It's, I like thinking of all emotions in terms of having that function, like that um, internal indicator of something. Like joy is this internal indicator of, yes, the environment that I'm in, whatever I'm doing right now is serving me. It's good. This is, this is what I want. Anger is usually, you know fear of something okay well can I identify what that is I'm not just angry for no reason Mm, mm. I'm angry because that person did this to me but if we go deeper into it okay well what is it that that I do feel shame or is it that I'm I'm scared to be rejected or or, afraid of some kind of loss so once we get good at identifying our emotions or using them as tools to to then look within ourselves and identify what's going on internally, then we don't have to be afraid of emotion, which I think a lot of people, particularly in our, like in Australia, men, everyone's afraid to express or experience emotion. We want to try and avoid that experience. Well, and that's the whole argument with um, antidepressants. It's kind of like, and I don't understand obviously neurochemically how, I'm sure people, some people do benefit very well from having them. And especially if you need just at least a little bit of time and space to process whatever's going on, that they, they'll probably help you bridge that gap. But if you're just applying a Band-Aid to a wound, I don't see how that in the long term is going to solve the problem. It doesn't, 
taking something that numbs your emotions isn't necessarily going to make you any closer to resolving your emotions. I just read this great article about psilocybin that they, the FDA in the U.S. has just approved psilocybin as a psychotherapeutic tool. Excellent. Yeah, yes, cool. So huh? good. So, and psilocybin, for anybody that doesn't know, I'm sure you guys probably have heard that, is uh, the magic, it's the component in magic mushrooms that gets you high, the, the psychedelic component. But what they're finding is that it almost, when they're going through psychotherapy while they have mushrooms, it allows them to feel the emotion, see it, and work their way through it without that running away or shutting down or feeling shame. It still works on serotonin the same way that um, antidepressants do, yeah. but instead of just numbing it and blocking it, they actually kind of push you through it. It's yeah. really interesting. Like, and I don't understand. Do you understand much about how that would work? I thought I used to. I read an article a while ago about psilocybin and how it actually functions in the the brain. I think what it does, and psilocybin, and maybe it's similar with things like ayahuasca and stuff like that. That um, it's blocking that higher order function, that sense of that ego sense ah, of self. Yeah. Okay. So. With SSRIs, like antidepressants and stuff, that's there's a chemical being released that blocks the reuptake of serotonin. So that allows more serotonin to be released to the neurons that need to. And throughout different parts of our lives, we have different levels of hormones. There's big individual differences about with all our neurotransmitters. Like if we're under chronic stress, we produce less dopamine, for example. Oh, yeah, okay. And that really affects motivation. Mm. But in terms of psilocybin, this again I think goes back to the default mode network because I think default mode network has a lot to producing that internal, that sense of identity. Oh, Whereas wow. where we're, when we're on psilocybin, we're, we disconnect, we've become, I don't know if you've ever done it, mm. yeah, you, there's less of a boundary between self and external. Yeah. And that's... I think that's a really important space wow, therapeutically for yeah, growth. That's really interesting. So mm. it, it kind of, it's almost like it shuts your ego judging self off for a little minute to experience raw sensation yeah. in terms of the grand scheme of things, like zooming out. Yeah, exactly what it's like. Huh, oh, yeah. wow. And it's like, and it, that, that euphoric, that joy that you get of like, Oh, this is what it feels like not to judge, not to judge yes. others, but it, not to judge myself. Oh, I'm a special little being that's in this special, <laughs> like, world. Okay. And it sounds like a bit, you know, hippy-dippy spiritually, but that sensation, that it's that connection with others. Yeah, it's think. like being at peace. I was just talking to a friend of mine about this yesterday that I think um, – when you're in love with someone else, it's not the someone else necessarily that makes you feel so good. It's the fact that you have, can stop pretending to be at anything. You know when you find someone that you really just get that comfortable with, even if they're your best friend or whatever, that, that the two of you mutually come together and stop playing a character. It's yeah. like that little moment where neither one of you is inside your own individual ego states and you both have got to that place of zoomed out. There's no need to be at anything. You can finally relax around each other. Then you look at them and you go, I love you. And it's like, no, no, I love me 
through you. Yeah. You know, like, thank God you allowed me to be me. Because I can be me. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but I wanted to ask you about your psychedelic experience. So you, um, it's really re- always refreshing and wonderful to talk to an academic person who also has dabbled in the world of psychedelics because it's been such a disassociated world. And especially somebody like you that works in psychotherapy, like, because the advances they're making right now with MDMA, yeah. with psilocybin, with even with acid, I mean, yeah, MDMA and PTSD, it's, it's quite amazing. Like, it's incredible, huh? What they're doing, and again, it's a it's about letting getting people into a state where they can do that work that they need to do, break down, recognize, because that's that is a difficult thing in psychotherapy, like all right, we want to focus on this topic, but people have so many layers of, like, protective behaviours that they're doing, mm. coping and avoidance, and, and that, that it's hard to get through all those. And that's, I think, a lot of the time what the psychedelics chemically can do for us. Wipe that away so then we can get in and do that work. Yeah, do the actual yeah. emotional work. What, um, you were saying just before that you had done, you did Cambo. Cambo's the frog medicine. Jesus Christ. Yeah. <laughs> what was it like? What happened? So I did I did Cambo or Sapo. They, in Peru they call it that. It's the frog poison that they they put it on a little stick and they burn some holes into your arm and then they put the poison into the into the burn so it goes straight into your bloodstream. And so beforehand you are asked to drink two litres of water. And the idea of it, it's like a immune system booster. It's meant to k- cause your immune system to kick in, to overdrive. And then after 20 minutes, they time it and then they wipe the poison away and you're meant to sort of reap the benefits of having a renewed and rejuvenated immune system. It definitely heightens your senses afterwards. I will say it was the most horrendous 20 minutes of my entire life. I just, like, you just spewed like vomit, vomit, vomit and like I sweat my entire body weight off my butt. Like oh my, God. my lips puffed up, my cheeks, my eyes puffed up. Like you look like a frog. <laughs> like wow. it's like it's wild and it goes oh away. But like within half an hour, 45 minutes after you're back to normal. It's fun. It's oh. not like, so like ayahuasca like is really like. bad fever. Yeah. Well, yeah. Exactly. Wow. And is it psychedelic at the time? No, not at all. And that's, yeah, that's the difference with him. You're kind of like, okay, it's, I'm really, this is really unpleasant. Some people get a little bit of that, you know, when you're so sick, you're almost in that euphoric state where you're mm. sort of out of it, out of that consciousness. But it's not, it's not, it's not psychedelic. And how did you feel good. afterward? Do you think it was worth doing? I felt refreshed. It, to be honest, it's hard to tell because I was in the middle of a, an ayahuasca retreat. Mm. I had done it quite a few times before. I've done it about five times. And the last time, I think I might have a high tolerance. So I'd always have a cup and be like, oh, it took ages. And then I see a bit and I'll go somewhere. and But not as intense as the experience of the people around me. And so the last time I sat next to the shaman, I asked for a big cup. And I got in within 20 minutes. I was... See, like, and that was my fear. Everything ripped away from me, like humanity, time, space. Time was terrifying. Yeah. Until you're in this place of, oh, this is consciousness. And so this must be to the point where I was like, you're still human and humans need to breathe. So breathe. Like, it was, 
it was sca- I was screaming. I'm like I, I grabbed that, you know, you've got the, your spew bucket there. <laughs> I was grabbing onto that as like something to hold onto in reality, but it was like the bottom of it was falling out. And um, and then gradually, once the I can't describe how terrifying that was. But that building it back, I had to build back the layer upon layer. And it was funny the way I did it. It was like in my head it was building back from the Big Bang onwards all the way through humanity until finally my own humanity and my and my own judgments and things were the last layers to come on top. Oh, judgments of other people, of myself. Oh, yeah, let's put them all back. Wow. <laughs> Do you ever feel like in those states it's almost like you understand everything about everything? Yeah. And then you, there's no way to articulate that. You and come you're back like, and you're like, I think I've just solved the world's problems, but actually I don't know. I, I wish I had a pen at the time. <laughs> yeah, God knows what I would have <laughs> Yeah. <God laughs> I wouldn't have been able to hold it, but it, <laughs> if only yeah. I could write something down. It's so, it's like that. But wow. do you notice that it's that similar state that you get into that pre sleep? Yeah, yeah. I do. It feels that way for me. I, it, I'm one of my new favorite things is um, like really small doses of acid, to the point where you feel just that slipperiness, like um, an altered state of consciousness, but nothing. So you can't actually manifest an image in front of your head. It's just yeah. this like tingly state of exactly. It feels like in between dreaming and reality. You're just kind of just stuck in between them, and I, I feel like. This is my wacky idea about dreams. I have no idea. It's almost like we draw inspiration from this other alternate thing, whatever it is. When we go to sleep, the judgment mind goes away, the conscious mind goes away, and infinite potentiality comes into us. And while we're in the state of infinite potentiality, whatever we can decode and pull back into reality will become art or will become magic or, you know, like... Like what we know as human potential is limited to what we expect and what we know and what we judge and what we can critically see and expect. And then you go into this dream state and suddenly all of that stuff fades away. And it seems ridiculous at the time. While you're in the dream, you're like, oh, of course. Yeah. Like, of course I can fly on this fucking robot. You know, and then <laughs> afterward you come back and you're like, that's stupid. But the the thing that says that you wake up and you're like, that'll make a great movie. Let me write yeah. it down. Then you're like, this is rubbish. Yeah, <laughs> this doesn't make any sense. But then like, so my theory is it's almost like if that's an IV and we're mm. getting drip fed potentiality, like if that's where we came from, and this yeah. is sounding super fucking wacky, so bear with me. Oh, I love it. But like, if that's where we came from was this an infinite state of potentiality before we were born. We came into here and we became a material reality. Every time we go to sleep, it's like getting a little IV of potentiality to help us manifest something in the real world. And this is, I, I'm speaking mostly from a creative perspective because I feel like when create when I'm drawing, if I start to think, oh, what can I personally draw? I'll draw something really shitty or really self-indulgent or really restrictive. But if I'm thinking, what idea can I express here? The idea drives my drawing. And then the, the thing drawing becomes a manifest of itself. It becomes this like, uh, physical expression of potentiality. Yeah. 
So I don't know. So when you it's go and getting into that flow state, isn't, isn't it? Yeah. So they feel all like the same thing. Like when you mm. enter into the kind of psychedelic realm, you enter into a dream realm, you enter into the flow state where your conscious brain switches off all of those three things. And even in love again, too, like yeah. when you find that moment of just being in pure bliss and in love with someone, I, in my opinion, it's like, that's what human beings are here for. Yeah. I like I, I like that idea of of human potential, and I like the and from a from a brain science point of view that the reason that we have in our brain we have either approach avoidance behaviors, but in our brain neurons are either inhibiting or allowing, and so we have these a lot of inhibitory processes that you know stop us from like our eyes see however many three primary colors but a shrimp might see 12 like our eyes for example are taking in so much more information than we're processing and seeing our eyes are taking in all of the light Mm. and gradually that's being filtered out and things are being inhibited so we're not seeing everything or we would just see you know chaos chaos (laughs) yeah and same with all information, like there's a thousand other things going on around me, but my ears are listening to my own voice, to your voice. And yeah, yeah. And if we were taking in everything, like that's why we have these, these filters. So I think we think of it in terms of, oh, it's such a shame if only we didn't have these filters. Or, but imagine living in that state of like oh, DMT, high, like of ayahuasca, when those sensory inhibitors are lifted. And we're experiencing everything that we can't live and function like that. So there's that process. Going back to the talking about when you're sleeping and dreaming, they think, I'm sure you've probably heard, like, um, we're experiencing everything every day. So we go through the day, we learn, we form new connections. and it, But it's when we sleep that we consolidate that memory. Okay. And so... As we dream, do you notice when you dream, like I'm quite good at recalling dreams and, you know, oh, that person was in my dream. Well, somebody mentioned someone related to that person. You can go back to the day before and pick it out and it's unusual how your brain – I love how your brain puts all that information together. Yeah, and and it tells you a new story. and then there's this whack story and you wake up and you're like, well, I can see where that idea and that idea came from. Mm. And it's – for me it's that the fact that it's all in there – but we have so many other cognitive processes going on each day that it like it's hard to get yeah. all that stuff out. So you're thinking by turning the attention inward with the self-reflection, you can actually start to em- embody your own potential better because it's in you regardless. Like the information is coming into you. It's just that your brain's filtering it. So the more you pay attention to what's in you, you will have better uh, control of those filters going forward. Yeah. I wow. Oh, that's interesting. And I think that's what's important about self-reflection because if you can, again, if we're talking in conversation and you say something that I find offensive, it might not be if I can go, oh, that's how I normally filter things like somebody's attacking me. Mm. If I could take a moment, oh, actually, let me not make assumptions. Let me think about... um, what your intention was oh she's her eyes look kind she's she looks like she didn't oh, mean maybe, it yeah maybe <laughs> you know maybe that was more about me but that's mm. that's a process that requires that initial self-reflection oh I get defensive easily 
Like, yeah. And how are there ways? Because these things are, are mostly subconscious, right? Like our unconscious reactions. How how do you develop that kind of pause? So, my main focus at the moment, what I would work with, um, is I do two. I do schema therapy. I do some EMDR, and both of those kind of relate to trauma and pulling out these stories, these um, b- negative beliefs that we have about ourselves. And once we figure out what are our driving ones, because they are, they're kind of the veil in which we see the world. So if, s- say, your, your mum doesn't hug you as much as you used to and so you're not receiving that nurturance as a child. And this isn't, I always put for that we're not blaming people's parents because everyone has their own schemas and own coping and everyone's mm. doing the best they can mostly unless they're like abusive <laughs> um say we weren't held enough so we're not getting that n- nurturance and so to get affection we try and and please people and you know give us give ourselves away or maybe we're hit and we start to believe that violence is associated, you know, and that, that we're defective. We, yeah, we must be bad. And so we grow up with this defective, I'm defective, I'm not good enough, I'm not worthy. And so we look out for certain aspects or experiences in life that validate that schema. Oh, and wow. while we have that schema, say it's I'm defective, so we have three ways in which we cope behaviourally. So we either avoid, so no one will ever love me so I might as well not bother going dating. Mm. Or we overcompensate and that might be presenting yourself perfectly with all the makeup and all the, you know, getting your tits done and mm. all that sort of thing and telling people how great you are. Mm. So that might be another way. And then surrendering into it would be having a relationship with somebody that does tell you your shit. Yeah, wow. Yeah. So wow. these are our ways. And, but once we get to learn that, uh, that inner critic and he, we can start to hear that voice, and this is all terminology of schema therapy, we can start to separate ourselves. And, you know, I enjoy it because it's a way to combat those voices without being like, or this is the real me or that's the real me. They're just thoughts, they're processes, they're experiences like any other experience we have in our life. But if that inner critic is going, you're a piece of shit, nobody likes you, or it's about developing this other, this healthy adult that can go, yeah, That's not true. Yeah. Yeah. Well, fuck off, I'm all right. Like, yeah. <laughs> I do. And then using that adult, well, what would the healthy adult do? The healthy adult wouldn't avoid. It wouldn't keep putting up with this shit from... In this relationship, yeah, okay. And do people do people tend to have one of those three reactions, or do they go in between all three of them? I think throughout the day we do. We will have yeah. In certain in certain areas, we will choose one, and that will be our favorite. Say in work, I'm really doubtful of my ability, so I will constantly avoid, 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 and that's. And the more we do that, the more it sort of tells us that. Yeah, it kind of concretes that, it. Yeah. Until it stops working. Like until, oh, shit, well, you, you keep not showing up for these presentations, so we're going to have to let you go. Mm. And that's a 
that could be a point for somebody to take that moment of self-reflection and go, okay, well, that behaviour that used to work for me isn't working for me anymore. So now I can choose to make that change. And some people it's more difficult to, to find that. Yeah, or just be like, oh, my boss is a fucking asshole. He doesn't, he doesn't yeah. appreciate what I can do. Yeah, that's really interesting. Well, th- and so this thing, I mean, so it's like your schema is equivalent to the story that you've told yourself about yourself in a particular situation, I guess, yeah. right? Yeah. Wow. And so if um, even, and that's really interesting. So even if your schema is self-destructive, like it's not nice, right? It's saying that you're not worthy. Yeah. You still hold on to it because it keeps things normal. Yeah. Because the schema equals normal for you, right? Yeah, I guess. you understand it. You understand how to live and you accept that to be true. When we talk about our schemas playing out, we talk about that inner child. And so it might be that that inner child that believes adults when they say, you know, you're a piece of shit or, or something yeah. like that. Or it might be like, for, you know, when you're... You were telling that story before about um, that circle that you're in and being that like stubborn kid on the outside going, well, fuck you then. Like yeah. that sort of th- – that's yeah, in a child working out that combative, defensive schema. Like, Yeah, I don't fit in, that. so fuck you. You guys are wrong because I'm not fitting into this group, so it must be that you guys are idiots, not me. Yeah. That's, that is 100% a script that has been playing inside my head forever. And it's funny, like, it sounds so stupid now when you're an adult. You're like, why would I do that? Because it was protective for you. It was a place that you could... Yeah. Yeah. It's like, again, that ski slope, it's deep. Wow, I'm used to behaving in certain ways with certain people. And now you're asking me to open my mind up to an idea that I've been told my whole life is wrong or shit or, you know. Yeah. So it's harder to change those if we're... And that's a neuroplasticity, isn't it? If if we're always experiencing new things, if on that scale of personality we're open to experience, then we're able to – it's easier for us. So how do you start to develop that? Mm. How do you start making those changes? With people, I'm a big um, believer in, you know, if you say – I give you an exercise, we're trying something new – and you do it one one out of ten times, and the other nine times you fucking do your old behaviour. That's still one. That's still one time down the other slope. Mm. So that's better. So it's starting really small. And a lot of the time with that it will be behavioural activation. So in um, cognitive behavioural therapy we have this, this part, behavioural activation, which is used for people with depression quite often and it's to get them back into this this motivation loop. Okay. So I can go into that a little bit more. Yeah, please do. Um, but ultimately it's scheduling in times to do things, do new things, try new things. Ah, so just there. any new thing yeah. just to kind of teach your brain that it's okay to do something yeah, different. Yeah, that, that, that you can go and do these high-risk things. But if we do, like if we come... And it's about training our brain to, f- like, find the rewards yeah, in, okay. in new things. So that's we're how you so get to motivation. Used to, yeah, we're so used to, if we're used to doing the same thing every day, we get very familiar with what the rewards are going to be or what the risks are, are going to be. Mm. 
and we're not out there looking for new stimuli. That's why with start pursuing new goals and new dreams, people give up. Yeah, (laughs) they're too used to feeling (laughs) that comfort. And um, so one of the things that I thought I would talk about today on the podcast was how the brain works in terms of motivation. Yeah, definitely. And that reward loop. So you... um, so we have two types of motivation. We have an approach system, which is our reward system, which is like, oh, if I press this lever, it gives me a treat. That's good. So I'll do that. Or we have the avoidance system, which is dealing with threats. So that's like your cortisol and um, adrenaline. And that's that fight or flight system. Your, para- your sympathetic nervous system kicks in and you're like, Grah. yeah, okay. I need to. So generally, if there's a threat in our environment, we're less likely to be reward-seeking at that point in time. We're more likely to deal with the threat at hand. And different people have different propensities for the two systems. So, you know, like a a really nervous person would be always looking for threats and Mm. dealing Mm. with those to stay calm. And it it might be that... And that's why chronic stress is is really detrimental to motivation. Oh, wow, that makes yeah. sense because you're not seeing any rewards. Yeah. You're just constantly and seeing you're not threat. looking for rewards. All you're de- doing is trying to deal with that, wow. the stress. Yeah. And chemically what that is is an area in the brain called the nuclear accumbens. It's the main area of the brain that dopamine's used. And it's the area of, and I'll go into it a little bit more, but where we get mo- our brain decides how much effort we're willing to put in for okay. change. And so we're less likely to get into that loop. And it's funny, like depressed people will say, oh, I, I don't, yeah, that would probably be good, but it, pro- it won't be that good, so I can't be bothered, I won't go. Mm. But when they actually go there, they like it, enjoy it just as much as mm. what they might have if beforehand they had been like, yeah, I'm really excited about that party tonight. Yeah, like yeah, okay. That doing and the liking are separate things. And so in the brain with the approach system, the reward system, so say, for example, I told you that there was around the corner there was a box full of money and I was telling you and ten other people here and first one get to run there gets it. So you're pretty motivated to do that. Um, your brain gets in... It gets rid of any distractions. You're not going to be answering your phone. You're not going to be doing that. You're going to be thinking about what you can do with that money. Mm. You're going to be um, really motivated to act, to get up and physically move. Yeah. Like that's motivation. So that's our brain doing a lot. And it's complex system as is everything in the brain and we don't know everything perfectly but there's always constant advances. But if I broke it down and really simplified it, We have the area of the brain, the ventro mm, uh, tangent, Mm, let's just call it the VTA. (laughs) I'm bad with with remembering my structures. We have the VTA and it's the area, again, run by dopamine in the mesolimbic system and it identifies rewards. And the same is with anything that we do. You know, you have friends because you know, all right, that person gives me Good feedback, or that person, yeah. somebody that I, I, I don't give me nothing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they give me nothing. They're so, always looking at their phone when they're talking to me. Yeah. It drives me nuts. Exactly. Yeah. So all day, every day, we're 
we're doing this. We're, we're choosing our paths to identify our rewards. So once we get a reward, the VTA activates. And you see that in fMRIs, like in brain scans. You see that part light up. As we get used to that same stimuli giving us reward, it starts to light up when it sees the stimuli rather than when it sees the reward. Oh, so our wow. brain changes, it moves, we, get, we learn. This is how we start to learn. And so from there, then the message gets sent to the nuclear accumbens uh, or the NAC. And in the NAC, that's where we decide how much effort we're going to put in to get that reward. Oh. And so there's a study of, of mice and there's a little dish of like crappy mouse food at the bottom and then up this ramp there's this like sweet treat for the, for the mice and there's an electrode into the mouse's brain that's activating their nuclear accumbens and the mouses with the higher activated nuclear accumbens would climb up the steeper ramps to get that food whereas the lazier the mice that with the less activated they were technically yeah. depressed more yeah. or less depressed Would, mice wouldn't, wouldn't do it. bother they'd be like oh yeah no nah, this food will do like this wow. requires less effort less effort so imagine in our lives the things we we're doing that all the time we're identifying places where we can get reward then we're doing that sort of check-in like can I, can I be fucked can I be bothered like yeah am I going to put in that effort and that same area, the knack, is also what lights up when you see pictures of someone sexy, like someone hot. Oh, wow. Um, when you see chocolate or smell chocolate or things like that, things that we like to eat. And there's, there's lots of different motivators for people. Um, it also lights up with revenge. It's so interesting. It's such a, like, this area is used for so many different, for so many different things. And we always think of like one part of the brain is used for this and one part, but Mm. our whole brain is constantly turning on and off and moving. But the nuclear accumbens in terms of motivation and and behavior, it's really Wow. So your aim with somebody who's depressed or suffering from anxiety is to turn off their uh, worry about the threat and turn on the nuclear Mm -hmm. accumbens towards um, find, well, obviously activating that and trying to motivate them towards rewards or seeing rewards so that the knack will turn on. Yeah. Essentially. Okay. Exactly. So in terms of that, like say, all right, you've put in this effort, the last, the last little piece of the the reward pie is the getting to the reward and savouring it and liking mm. it and then deciding whether or not it's worth pursuing that reward further or it's it's that whole higher order functioning of like, you know, now I need to analyse, is it, if, is it worth doing that? Because if you just had your nuclear accumbens activated all the time, they did this with, with mice again. Poor little mice, they're always mm. getting... Um, <laughs> And they forgot food, sleep. They just kept pushing the thing that allowed the... Oh, just for the feeling. So they didn't even care about the reward anymore. They just wanted the feeling. Yeah. Yeah. And so that feeling to the point where it killed them. Yeah. Because they didn't do anything else. So that's just like, you know, getting crack pretty much. Because it feels so good to be high on crack that you forget to eat. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. And it's what cocaine does Mm. in Mm. our system. It's activating that area and... That's releasing huge amounts of dopamine into yeah. the into the knack, but that's why we have the prefrontal cortex, 
that develop, which interesting, we were talking about teenagers, doesn't fully develop until we're into our 20s, late 20s. Ah, okay. So that risk-taking behaviour that teenagers seem to do yeah. is because there's that immediate gratification reward without that higher process of like, all right, what are the risks? What are the, you know, yeah, okay. what is this, the reward, the loss? Like, is it worth it? It's yeah. that higher order functioning. So going back to your question before, what we do with people. Mm. So when de- with depressed people, it, they tend to see in MRIs that their nuclear cumbens is underactive. And that's because they're, they're finding it really hard to get motivated. But one easy way, because of that liking, like once they actually go, like I mentioned, they like the party. Mm. So it's not about that higher order function or the VTA, like they're all intact, like they can identify reward just fine and they can enjoy it, but it's that motivation to do it. Mm. And so with that, it's a, the behavioural activation is that, okay, I'm going to go for a walk even if I don't enjoy it, even though I know it's going to... And it's about starting small and, yeah, and okay. building up. So you've, you're getting them back into that reward loop. Okay. Where they haven't been in that reward loop. And that's tough because especially when you feel that low, and I know it myself, I, I go... Th- I, I had a moment last week and we talked about it in the pos- podcast with Lucas where I was just kind of like, I'm tired of being so up and down. I'm tired of waking mm. up one day and being like, yep, I got this. I'm good. I'm good. I'm happy. No matter what, I'm just going to make a podcast or I'm going to make a video or whatever. I'm happy. And then the next day I'm like, oh, I just want to sleep all day. I don't want to move. And I, it wasn't the fact that I woke up feeling like I wanted to sleep all day. Like I'm used to that feeling now. But when I'm in the downside of that cycle, I imagine that that's going to be me forever. Yeah. When I'm in the upside of the cycle, I imagine I'm going to be like this forever and I'm fine. So then when I dip, I, I had this just very clear... And it was the very hopeless feeling like I don't want to keep going up and down. I'm tired of not knowing how I'm going to wake up tomorrow. I'm mm-hmm. sick of it. I just want to turn all the lights off. And it, that's a scary fucking thought. That's yeah. the, it's probably the worst thought because just being laying hopeless in bed all day is kind of like, oh, whatever. I, like it's almost like I don't even care that I don't care. <laughs> yeah. So it doesn't matter. I'm totally listless. But the one where I'm, it's almost an anxiety of being on the roller coaster of life that I just can't yeah. take it anymore. That being so up and down all the time is so fucking exhausting. It's that fear of not coping, not yes. being able to cope. Yes, yeah. precisely. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And that, like, that is anxiety. And you know, I'm. I often give people that example of like, I'm someone who's had panic attacks in the past, like that, and I've been through some depression and, and mm. things as well. And it does get to a certain point, I believe, that if people are in such a way that you just can't get through to them in therapy, that's when I would be on the... Because I'm not... I'm definitely not for long-term SSRIs or Mm. long-term antidepressants. If people... But sometimes they need it for that short amount of time just to get enough serotonin to kick in to be up to something just maintain a normal balance for a little while to get it going yeah but i yeah i don't like the idea of using that to blanket because you're actually not like underneath there's still those those things about you though that you haven't worked on Mm. there's that trauma that might be 
underneath there, that feeling of worthlessness just might be that you're able to ignore it better. Yeah. And on some days, and do you know what's funny about that too is that um, it's because the triggering event, whatever, or the activating event, whatever it was that caused me to, it's it's more of a self-awareness thing that like if I am really honest with myself, I do kind of know what's going to spiral me down or spiral me up. And if I'm, you have to take a little minute to sit back and be like, oh, it's because he liked my video. That's why I feel uh, good today. Yeah. Or it's because he's ignoring my messages. That's why I feel shitty. Or it's because I didn't get that call back for the job or I didn't get the audition I wanted. You know, like, and you, your brain is, I find, so clever at, like, masking the real reason yeah. because it's really hard to look at the real reason. Yeah. Like, I feel like I'm not good enough for him and I want him to love me. You know, like yeah. that statement is so hard to face sometimes. You, so mm. you just, I'll be like, oh, I'm, it must be because I'm tired. Yeah. <laughs> and it's like, no, let's be honest here. You're trying too hard to impress somebody who doesn't know you exist. Yeah. So you are tired now because yeah. it's exhausting. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Why are you running after yeah. someone who's looking the other way? <laughs> exactly. And that's, that is, it's so hard for us to be able oh. to reflect because we are told that we shouldn't be showing weakness and or identifying our weaknesses. Like, yeah, I'm oversensitive to other people's opinions. In therapy, it's all about individuals and individual differences and working out what that person's needs are. But I also like have in the back of my mind and I think about it a lot is the society that we live in is just this perfect breeding ground for these insecurities and things like that. Like we can't help but to fucking be body conscious and stuff because unwittingly – and we've done it. Like we've built up like the the Nike women thing that you talked about before. Like the – it's hard to argue with because we want women to be empowered and stuff. But at the end of the day, that's just selling fucking shoes. Like it's what's within your control or out of your control. Mm. And I can be fucking thinking about the Nike shoes and the like getting pissed off about this video. But ultimately, all right, am I going to write to them? Am I going to like, yeah, fuck, nah. So that's well, not worth my day. What's worth my day is maybe speaking to a young person, a young woman and telling her, you know, oh, you did really great at that. Like, or, yeah. oh, you want to do a self-defense class? Yeah, cool. Let's do it. Or you want to practice some yoga? Sweet. I'll, I'll show you how. Like, And because it's physically, tangibly real. Yeah. Like, and I think that's why commercials are so frustrating to me or the entire, I'm not saying that capitalism itself as a whole institution is fucked. I think there's elements of it that are good and bad, but for the most part, when we are operating so much on trying to, uh, make people feel bad enough to buy our shit, we are consciously buying into a universe that is false. Yeah. Like I accept that Nike is probably using child slave labor and disempowering women in third world countries in order to get me a pair of shoes that I can afford. And that's okay because they made a video that empowers women. You know what I mean? Like their commercial empowers women and I'm going to accept that. So on the surface, I can look at somebody and be like, no, they actively support women in their commercials. But, you know, yeah, like slave labor, like all of that stuff is, it's no big deal because I'm buying the image that's in front of me because it's more convenient for my brain. And, And where my frustration is, is that by 
believing those commercials or even allowing for those commercials to exist without showing the dirty underside of what they're actually doing as a company is that we are teaching our brains to live in a dichotomy. We are constantly teaching our brains that it's okay for someone to lie to your face if they are telling you something pleasant while they do something nasty. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Like if we buy into a culture that's like that, then we are also susceptible to buying into the story that my brain tells myself about why I'm unhappy, yeah. even though the truth is. Like like the very typical example that you could use is something like um, a you're trying to date somebody, right, and he's not answering your messages, and your girlfriends are all like telling you, I don't know, just, you know, some fucking oh, story. Maybe, yeah, maybe he's oh, yeah, just away for the weekend. Yeah, he's or just maybe. away for the weekend. He yeah, probably lost his phone, but he totally sit. loves you. Yeah, and then you're <laughs> sitting there and you're like, yeah, 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 I'm going to buy into that. And you're just dragging, 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 yeah. dragging along. But there's part of you that knows, like, he just yeah, doesn't I like just you. I know. And, then yeah. you're, and you're starting to get crazy in your head because you're believing a story mm. outside of yourself all the time where we know instinctually this shoe can't possibly be this cheap. Yeah. For the amount that they're producing, they have to be doing something wrong to get the shoe to me. I'm going to ignore that and I'm going to buy the shoe anyway. It's the same thing. This person's not answering my messages for a week now. I'm still going to hold on to it because I'm sure he does love me. Because we're disassociated from reality. We want the thing that makes us feel good right then. And I think the problem with recognising reality is then recognising that it's not black and white like that. It's grey. It's so grey. Yes, they did a great ad, but... They are fucking extorting children and women. Yeah. Like Nike's probably a bad example because I think there's a lot more bad than good in that. Yeah. But something else with it, it's sort of a bit like, you know, cage-free eggs. Like, yes, they're doing something good, but there's still a fucking lot of chickens in a very small area. Like, yeah, but I'm going to eat those eggs because it's better, but I'm, at least I'm informed now because I know that life is grey and if I want to eat eggs, I need to make some bad choices. Like, oh, not... Perfect. I can't be perfect. Yeah, you can't be perfect all the time, and that and yeah, that is the real trouble with it. And the other problem too is that with your with having such high expectations of yourself constantly to be perfect in a world that is imperfect, mm. you're gonna fuck yourself up. Yeah. And what's that? There, there is a term for this in psychology, isn't it? Like having these really strict beliefs, the I must statements. You know, like when you yeah. operate under an I must statement or. Yeah, that's a I get team, yeah. I get rid of. Um, I tell people that we're not using shoulds and musts. Like, yeah. Okay. Oh, I should have done this. Oh, I must be like that because we are. We create these these rules. We call those like automatic negative thoughts. Like one would be catastrophizing. One would be using shoulds and musts. One would be taking everything personally. So they're the thought processes that are at the top. They're our automatic. What happens straight away? Those negative like. He didn't message because he hates me and then it goes down to that next one, the schema, because people that like me message me every five seconds. That's my rule. Mm. And it's and underneath that it's like he didn't message me because I'm not worthy, I'm not lovable. I'm, so we're telling ourselves these things that are, are feeding into all these old beliefs we have about ourselves. And when we start to break things down, when we stop saying shoulds and musts, we are identifying that... Our thoughts are just automatic things that happen in our brain and we don't have to listen to them. They're just like any other sense. And that's why 
pulling in another th- therapeutic technique like mindfulness. That's why practicing it is so important. It's not about sitting here and clearing your mind as you would know. It's about being able to sit here and go, I'm experiencing hot, cold, pain, um, sadness, happiness, ec- ecstasy. Like, oh, I thought about my fucking dog when I was in grade six or these people and, you know, them judging me and whether or not they would have liked that social media post. And It's about recognising all of that as just experience, not bad or good or not a reflection of who you are as a person, just mm. as an understanding of this is what's going on and I don't need to react to any of it. Yes, okay. So that's, that's the pause that we, you talked and asked about earlier. Okay. It's about getting better at going, there's the thought that's come in or there's the external experience that's happened to me, let me take that step, become that observer of the thought so I can have that moment of proper analysis, get that prefrontal cortex working to analyse the moment and then respond. Yeah, okay. And respond in a way that's going to serve me long term and not serve me immediate gratification by avoiding or overcompensating or whatever it is but serve me as healthy human healthy adult self move forward yeah and and get to the direction that you're looking for or get yeah. at least that kind of authentic social interaction that you're looking for because i think we all at the end of the day know mm. that the um non the inauthentic social reactions that you're getting like like just somebody going oh cool like your picture whatever it's not as gratifying as like seeing someone smile when you tell them a story or whatever. It's actively yeah. engaging with somebody else. And I think, so when I drill down all my behavior back to that, I notice that if I do something selfish, I miss out on human connection. If I yeah. do something that's instantly gratifying, I also miss out on human connection. Yeah. You know, so I don't get that kind of overall sense of being that. That's tended to become my new uh, mental health regime. It's like, ah, is this going to serve me? At the yeah. end of the day, am I going to find a connection with the other person or with my artwork or with the podcast or with the video? Am I intricately connected to this thing or am I doing it because I need a bit of, I need a good hit of dopamine? Yeah. And so, you know, and I think that is, that's that balance between those two approach and avoidance. So that striving towards goals and needs, but also self-care around anxiety and fear and as you said before, nothing is black and white. It's like, yeah. yes, you need a little dose of doubt, but not so crippling that you yeah. are a piece of shit or you're looking for constant validation. And I think that's, yeah, and I think when people do first start to self-reflect or I th- personal experience, when I started to be more honest with myself, in the beginning, it's like, oh, shit, I'm a piece of shit like I'm a bad person like look at me and all my flaws (laughs) but then you're like well you know no we all have these things we all have our own different the difference is right now and the reason I'm feeling so shitty is because I'm starting to recognize them because without recognizing them I I can't change how would you I mean I don't know if we we kind of have talked about this a little bit but like if a person doesn't know that they need to change, but they like, what's a kind of an indicator for you when you start seeing people coming into therapy? Like, is there a pretty common thing that people are like, I don't know. I just started feeling bad. So I need help. Like, what is it that people finally end up coming to you for? Mm, A lot of people come to me when they're 
really overwhelmed and they've been running on adrenaline, like they've been not oh, wow. coping, overworked, over, you know, or, you know, going down into a relationship and it's just getting to the point where they keep, they can't take it anymore. And alter, for me, a lot of the time and the more I'm getting into like relationship therapy and communication is people being afraid to communicate their needs to mm. others or to themselves. And what stops them? Fear, I think a lot of, most of the time it's fear of rejection or fear of the consequence or the cost mm. and what that might be. So people that get stuck in these relationships where it's not necessarily bad but they're not, they're always doing everything for their partner or they're, because they're not asking for their needs to be met. And a lot of the time for me it's about helping people identify what their own needs are and working towards that. And in the beginning it might – we might have to break that down and get people to be able to identify their own emotions because a lot of the time we're not good at that either. Yeah. So stress is a massive one huh. and that's – and then – people coming in with depression and not, and usually it's not one or the other, it's a little bit of both, you know, that I used to do this and now I don't do it anymore because I can't be bothered and oh, I can't be bothered to do this, that or the other. And so, and, but now life has, it feels meaningless. Yeah. Oh God, mm. yeah, that's scary feeling. Yeah. I mean, we all have it and I think, I don't know if there's a takeaway from doing psychedelics for me, it's that life like maybe there isn't any particular one meaning to life but you just try and live the best for you and for everyone around you mm. I think and and have connections and experience yeah it feels like experience I had a, a very um very sharp moment with ayahuasca where an airplane flew by overhead while I was laying on the balcony and I looked up and I was this weird fucking matrix of lines and shit. You know, you just can see, I could feel like the, see the fabric of the universe. Yeah. And I saw this plane go through it and I had this like f distinct feeling of like, oh fuck, it doesn't matter if I'm sitting here, the planes are still going to go. Whether I'm here or in a mental asylum or dead, the planes will always be landing and taking off. Mm. And it was amazing that I just realized I'm a cog in this giant thing. I've become the central focus of my own experience, that I'm the thing. <laughs> and then I just realized, like, you're not the thing. Yeah. The thing happens. Experience happens. Life happens. And the planes will go and you will be here or not. And either you can participate and enjoy it yeah. or fuck off. Yeah. Because ayahuasca is kind of funny like that. It's not very, um, oh, I had acacia and ayahuasca mixed yeah. together. So I'd almost felt like it had an Australian <laughs> sense of humor about it. It was kind of like, mate, what are you fucking worried about? <laughs> and I was like, oh, I know. Why am I so worried? And it was a nice feeling, like that sensation that, because I and think. And I take comfort in that too, being you're not insignificant. the special thing. Yeah. I I like that, that, that self-reflection of looking out into the stars and realising what a small, insignificant piece of dust that we are. I take comfort in that. Like, I, yeah, I find that as... off. Yeah, I'm like, yeah, cool. I might fuck up a million times then. <laughs> like, and that's okay. Life, life will keep happening. Yeah, yeah. 
Because I think I, I think we smother, like I was talking about with artwork before, we smother potentiality by our own expectations of what we are capable of or who we are or what we yeah. should be or whatever. And I think we smother our own lives with that fear of like, this is all I can be. This is what I am. And I have to hold, hold, hold. Yeah. It's such a funny thing. We are always on this tightrope of I need things to be the same when I'm happy and I need things to be different when I'm unhappy. But as soon yeah. as I'm made things, when I'm unhappy, I make things different, which makes me happy. Now I need them to stay the yeah. same. And, and then nothing stays. And not, it doesn't stay. And then even if it does stay, then all that slowly unhappiness is going to creep in because you're bored and you're stuck and you're like, yeah. all right, now what's next? So I mean, And we need that continuation of reward and drive and looking for something else. I don't know. It's, it's, a, it's a hard mix between some people can be content and I think that is a more admirable pursuit than happiness. Yes. Itself. Contentment in whatever state it is and like you were saying before you're up and down and just getting so sick of that and I, I know that feeling of like oh I can't do, keep doing this it's like where's it all going but contentment that yeah this is what it is and tomorrow will be better and this helps me learn in some way mm. I guess changing your relationship with with that with your moods yeah, yeah, that's a great point. That like the, when they're bad, they're not wrong necessarily. They just yeah. are. Yeah, yeah, that's tough. It's hard to tell yourself it, that when you feel. It bad is hard because a, a negative emotion feels negative. It doesn't feel good. Mm. But the more we can learn to, and I think a good place to start in terms of turning negative is, is sadness. Like, I think we can indulge in we can enjoy the experience of sadness is much easier to experience than something else like humiliation or shame. God, yeah, shame sucks. We were thinking about this because, um, like, viewed from the lens of transactional analysis, uh, and if you guys don't know what I'm talking about, it's the podcast I keep going on about... um, go back to episode 42 and the other one where I talk about transactional analysis, but the idea that we are, our core driving feature is this recognition that when we get the opposite response from the people around us, like, so I need to be recognized by you and I think this is going to get me recognition. And then you like, look at me like, what are you doing? You know what yeah. I mean? That shame. It's because like our core evolutionary advantage was to be able to cooperate in a group, in a group. together. Yeah, and exactly when the group right. looks at you like you idiot, that sh- that shame is as close to starving to death. You yeah. know, that feeling evolutionarily makes sense because if you're ousted yeah. by the group, you are going to starve to death. We're such pathetic animals and <laughs> predators <laughs> compared to yeah. the other predators on this planet. If I get ousted, I'm fucked. Yeah, it's that ability. It's it's being able to work together. And that's why with depression, and you'll see nine times, and most people that come in to see me, anxiety, depression, it is they're socially isolated. Damn. Like, or they they might not be. They might have friends, but no one that they can talk to about this stuff. Mm, like they, mm. because they have some sort of reputation to uphold or, I can't, couldn't tell that person about it. I couldn't tell my husband about that or he would never look at me the same or I could, you know. Oh, that's so sad. Yeah. Because that's and supposed to be the, the person yeah. closest to you. That, oh. 
So it's I fear that in a relationship so much. And that's why I always sort of come back to communication because with effective communication, you can have those important, integral relationships in your life where you are giving and taking with like sharing with somebody. Mm. And that's like in terms of protective factors with um, any mental illness, social connection is the number one. It's Isn't studies. that crazy? Because that's the one that kind of goes first. I know yeah. when I was drinking too much and isolated myself or was drinking too much, the main product of that was that the alcohol replaced my friends. And the rewards that I was getting from the drunken behavior I was doing with idiots that I didn't know and didn't care about, it because I was afraid of the intimacy of actually dealing with my shameful behavior, mm. I would avoid it more by doing more of the su- superficial behavior. Yeah. Because then that way it's like, oh, good, I, I can drown the feeling of shame with being drunk and then I can participate in these stupid drunken rituals that everybody does that are meaningless because then I don't have to actually let you get close to me. Yeah, because in that moment it might feel like there's a connection but the, it's not there. It's, it's not, not real. there. Because the real connection that you're trying to avoid at that moment is with those friends that will tell you, what the fuck are you doing? Put your head in. Yeah. Like, yeah, I mean. Yeah. Ugh, those are hard conversations to have, but they're yeah. the they're honestly the best thing you can do for for yeah. a person that's going through that because yeah. I, I imagine that's the only way you pull them back, huh? Yeah, and I you know I remember at least two of those conversations like delivered to directly towards me in times of my life where I was doing too much partying or poor eating choices like that, and friends sitting me down and going, "Oh, what are you doing?" Like. Mm this is an intervention, like that sort of thing. And you're like, ah, the shame is like unbearable. Yeah. But there's underneath, with that shame comes this immense love and respect from somebody that cares enough about you to to call you out on your bullshit. Yeah, man. And so it's about holding on to that and going, all right, this shame is telling me that this person's right. Because if they're way off the mark, you wouldn't experience that shame. Right, that's a great yeah. point. Yeah, you wouldn't yeah. feel it. If they weren't telling you the truth, you would not feel that, yeah. would you? Exactly. Yeah, because you'd be able to look at them and be, be like, like oh, fuck. I, yeah, you're yeah. missing the point. I do remember justifying it to a lot to myself. Mm. Like my friends came up to see me and Darwin, who's my longest, oldest friend, one of my closest friends. She's basically my sister here. She um, and our, our brother came up to visit me, and there, it felt like we were in different rooms you know, we'd be standing next to each other and I was just like, I don't know you. And she, I just, the sadness and I, the amount of shame there was between us, I was just trying to talk over it and I was just trying to get yeah. them drunk because I was like, no, 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 you get on my level. You just, you guys don't realize this is what it's like here. You just have to be like me here. You know, I'm like talking a yeah. million miles an hour, drinking as fast as I can, getting on whatever I can get on. And they were like, oh, I guess so. Like, we'll try and party with you. And then they just left and I've never felt so fucking lonely. And I remember yeah. I wrote, I had an embarrassing blog at the time. And when I wrote, I wrote about the experience later and I was like, they just don't understand. Like, I'm just free right now. I'm just like experiencing <laughs> the moment. <laughs> living my best life. Yeah, I'm just living my best life. Like... I just need to, and I did in a way need to experience that explosion because I had been in relationships since I was 16 
until I was 26. I, so I had 10 years of long-term relationships, two, yeah, wow. one year, two, one and a half, two years, six years, all together with hardly any breaks. And any one that was in between them were also like three-month relationships, like a boyfriend. Yeah. So I never had that period of time to just like not give a fuck about anything and not be responsible for anyone else. And I went way too far that direction. You know, just was like, Bleh! An yeah. explosion. And it's good because I think it developed me into the person I am now, thank God. But um, Jesus, it would have been hard for them to watch. Yeah. I think that was my entire, the entire decade of my 20s. <laughs> <laughs> That's just the right a, time to do just it. Just a bit of that. <laughs> <laughs> just a bit of the blur. Yeah. But I. But that probably They're is growth what, moments as well, though. Like, I imagine that's what makes mm. you a good psychotherapist, man, because mm. you can actually relate to people on all of those levels from the depths of hell yourself. Yeah, and I think that there's, I mean, there's certain topics, and I, by becoming a psychologist, you are forced to be self-reflective because yeah. the last thing that I want is for one of one of my beliefs or how I feel about a certain topic to be translated onto one of my clients because mm. this is about them, their session. It's not about me. It's it's about them. And I give – I have been through things. So in terms of anxiety, like I feel very uh, comfortable discussing that and going over it because it's not something I really dislike people when that use – I dislike it when people use, not dislike the people, they're just mm -hmm. people. Um, it's my anxiety. Like yeah, yeah, it's, mine. it's mine and it's this thing that controls my behaviour and I have – but it's not my anxiety. It's, it's anxiety. It's something that is in there that happens that yeah. we either – it's an experience. It's something that we feel with and we can choose then to act on and sometimes – it makes acting in any other way really fucking difficult. Yes. But it's still a choice. Yeah, it becomes an identity, man. And this is it a is, really... It becomes an identity. And it becomes yeah. somewhere to place the blame. Right. For taking the... Sometimes the easy road. And now that sounds fucking terrible. It sounds like I'm a psychologist putting down mental illness. But if you want to change, and that's what is the hardest obstacle to overcome when people come into a session, it's like... We need to get you to that – find that place where we can get enough motivation just to ch start a little bit mm. and it's gradual and it's – because people – when you feel like shit, you want to feel better now. You want to yeah. feel better today. But if we want to develop ourselves and to work through anxiety, it takes time and it takes effort. Well, and yeah, that makes perfect sense. You can't allow it. To, it's hard to change you, the person. So when mm -hmm. I, when I, my anxiety is me, the person, yeah. it's going to be really hard to change you. But when you go, oh, this is a thing that happens to me yeah. and I experience this thing, then you can be like, oh, I don't really and, like the way I act when yeah. I feel that way. So that maybe if I changed the way I felt, I wouldn't act that way. Because yeah, if it funny. is your identity, then if it's gone, then what's there? There's that fear around, like, well, what will oh, be left? I? Who am I if I'm not anxiety, depression, if I'm not mm. eating disorder, if I'm not whatever it is? Like, mm. Mm. Isn't that funny that we would hold on to something that makes us miserable just because it makes us feel like a self? Yeah, yeah. It's been a, it's been a really, yeah, interesting few last year for me as well. I don't know, like... 
if I'd told you or mentioned it, but I lost a child like oh a year God. ago. So um, for me, I'd worked with people with grief before, but it wasn't until experiencing that like in a real raw and real fucked up life upside down way that you start to appreciate oh what the fuck was I telling people about grief before I had no idea what I was talking about now that you've I've gone through something like that it's still it's still difficult for me to work with people with grief but I also know that ultimately I'm going to be much better prepared and have that in my in my toolkit at this point in time I still there is some emotion that I worry will you know that will reflect on my clients but um wow completely different so hard yeah that's an amazing reflection to have though that like yeah yeah, like you you were reading from a textbook before going this is how you deal with grief yeah and then grief happens to you and you go oh yeah and that's why we have that tendency like we help people it's easier to help people that have been through similar experiences, I think, naturally. that's yeah. you know, But yeah. that's the thing, man. If you spend your whole life avoiding experience, even though they're fucking rotten sometimes, horrific, if yeah. you avoid all the time, you are going to lack connection to other people because you, you can't experience what other people are experiencing if you've never experienced it yourself. Yeah. And I think if you spend that much time hiding behind a persona that you think you should be or trying to present yourself as a somebody because you think that's what people are going to relate to, no one mm-hmm. gives a fuck. Yeah. No one will ever exactly. relate to you because we all we care about is what's real. And you find that in therapy as well. Like, you know, you as a therapist, I think it's really important that people shop around and you have to get mm-hmm. a pretty thick skin like, oh, I thought I did well, but that person doesn't come back. And you're like, yeah. obviously, I wasn't the right one for them you're not choosing to share because you don't feel comfortable with that person. Mm. So mm. they aren't the right person for you. Mm. Mm. That makes sense. Wow, man. Oh, yeah. Fucking hell, we've been talking for an hour and a half. <laughs> <laughs> really? That's yeah. awesome. It's crazy it's, how fast it goes. Man. I know. And it's funny how like as you start talking, there's a thousand other things that come into oh, my head. And I'm like... Well, I would love to have you back anytime you're down this way. Oh. I would love to keep talking to you about this shit because I think a lot of people can gain a lot from this... And my whole podcast is obviously about mental health and motivation, so how yeah. we can help people improve themselves. And yeah. I think they'll get a lot out of it. So I really appreciate you coming. That's yeah. awesome. Cool. Awesome. Um, and so if people want to find you, do you guys, do you have a practice somewhere or a page or something that people can look for if they want to come see you or? Yeah. So I'm in, I'm in Maruka at the moment in Brisbane. I work um, at a place called Character Care. It's an old church out there and we've got some rooms. So if you went on to charactercare.com.au, you can find me there. You can just search therapist. I'm normally down the coast a lot too and so I've had that thought of maybe doing some weekend work or like one or two days a week down the coast. So keep – I'll keep you posted. Yeah, (laughs) easy, man. Well, thank you so much for coming and we'll talk to you again soon. That was Anna Almargo. If you'd like to hear any more information or see any of the links about the stuff that we're talking about in there, please go to my website and click on episode number 48, and uh, all the details will be there. If you want to join in with Metatarch, the app, again, is called Waking Up, and it's developed by Sam Harris, who is a, a philosopher and a neuroscientist, 
You can read all about that on my website. Hope you guys have a wonderful week, and I will talk to you again soon. Thank you.